Let's pray together. Please to Acts chapter 5. We began last week the first portion of chapter 5 in our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Acts. There was much to consider in last week's section, and so we slowed down just a little bit in our approach to it so that we could glean from it what we need. But today we're going to see the second portion of the chapter, which in some ways, as I talked about last week, is a bit of a mere image to what we saw in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is the apostles' response, specifically Peter and John's response, to what had happened in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, they had healed a lame beggar, a man who was hopeless, a man who sought help from all those who passed by him each day going into this temple structure, but no one could. They could give him a few denarii to maybe feed him for the day, some bread and some wine perhaps, but they couldn't fix his deep infirmity. Peter and John, who themselves were learning that real treasure was not to be found in gain, either monetarily or through position, but in Jesus alone, Heal this man in the name of Jesus. And in this section you find that the leaders of Israel find out about this and bring them before the council and threaten them that they are not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. At the end of chapter 4, the believers pray for boldness and the community is transformed both in their bold proclamation of the gospel and in the way that they loved each other. And so we saw in chapter 4, just as a little bit of recap, that the gospel changes what we fear. That's the first part of chapter 4. In the second part of chapter 4, we find that the gospel changes what we treasure. So when we fear God and are in awe of what He has done through His Son Jesus in granting us the good news, the gospel, we no longer need live in fear And we will no longer be hoarders. Instead, we will be sharers. And we saw last week that the Spirit-filled community, those that have embraced the gospel of Jesus, will not be satisfied with sin. Ananias and Sapphira are a tragic testimony of people who lived falsely, who sought to elevate themselves within the community with dishonesty. And when the Spirit is reigning in a community, He will not let this go on. He will expose sin. Furthermore, we found last week that the Spirit-filled community will live in awe and wonder of Jesus after Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead for their deceitful pride. The community is further transformed. Many, many more people are converted to the faith. And the church lived in awe and wonder of their Savior. But we find this week in verses 17 through 42 that 
as we saw in chapter 4, this does not sit well with the powers that were. We'll talk a little bit about them in just a minute. The powers that were, the council of Israel, the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel, because this was a religious culture. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, it was a rather spectacular sight, just as if you were to go to a cemetery and find the grave of a rich person. It's impressive. But inside that sepulcher, that tomb, it's full of dead men's bones. And Jesus likened the religious leaders to this. So we're going to get a little look at these people today and what made them tick, why they did what they did. And we'll see this in contrast to the people of God, who on the outside were not impressive. If you were to go to a cemetery and try to find them today, they would be the kind of people that lived on the margins and therefore had tombs on the margins if they were even marked. But those graves will not hold such people, for they are the resurrected people of God. So we will see today a great contrast between those who are self-righteous, who will do all that they can to protect themselves, and by contrast, the people of God who outwardly may not be very impressive, but because of Jesus, they can transform the world. So let's read together, beginning in verse 17, the word of God. But the high priest, Acts 5.17, rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, Luke is a good psychologist here, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the priests came and those who were with them, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. When the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I'm going to read that verse again because that verse just blows my mind and I can't quite wrap myself around it. Then they left the presence of the council, who had just beaten them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. May God bless us through the reading of his word. Simple outline for today, verses 17 through 26, when we Live in all of other people, we'll be afraid of everything. That's what Luke is telling us today through the inspiration of the Spirit. When we live in all of other people, we'll be afraid of everything. Fear is an interesting thing. Fear is a result of the fall. Before sin entered into the hearts of our first parents, there was no fear. Humanity, for a time, lived in perfect harmony with God and with each other. There was vertical and horizontal harmony. As you look back at the garden... And there's a reason why we talk about that a lot here at this church. That short chapter of Genesis chapter 3 is very instructive for so much of the rest of the Bible and for our human experience. One of the interesting things that you see there existentially, psychologically, about Adam and Eve is that as soon as they fell from grace, as soon as they rebelled against God's law, they were afraid. They hid from God. And they begin blaming each other, and God shows up and warns them that one of the curses is that they will have disharmony with each other. Fear. And ever since, humanity has been plagued by it. Ever since, humanity has struggled with it. Fear. 
it's a tricky thing because it manifests itself in different ways. You might have a fearful child, a child who is afraid perhaps of storms. If you live up in this area, you woke up yesterday morning to thunder that was loud, shaking the house. Some of your children can't stand that. They might be afraid of going to school, strangers, dogs. It's pretty easy to see. Remember whenever we brought Abe and Zeke home from Ethiopia, they had never seen a dog inside of a house before. The dogs in Ethiopia all kind of look the same. They're little mutts that kind of look like Australian dingoes, and they run around the street and they eat scraps. I could show you pictures of some of the beautiful mutts of Ethiopia. One we found dragging a sheep head around. That was quite a sight. That was the picture that my children had of dogs. You stayed away from them. And if you got near them, they'd probably take your hand off and give you a myriad of diseases. We have a black lab. She weighs about 60 pounds. She's not that intimidating. She might jump on you, but it's just because she wants you to pet her and she'll lick you a little bit. When we got home, my little three-year-old boy at that time had never seen a black dog to begin with, so she probably looked like some kind of devil. And he had never seen a dog inside. Because all the Ethiopian dingoes are about 37 pounds, he'd never seen one as big as her. So when he got home, he was scared to death. And he would hold to me like a koala. He's kind of a big kid, now he's four, but he would drag his legs up and kind of tuck them up under my ribs and stick his nails in my neck, and he wouldn't have anything to do with her. Over time, he's adjusted, and now they're best buddies. But he was fearful. You could see it. You could hear it. Such fear is somewhat easy to detect. What happens, though, once we get a little bit older, is our fear manifests itself in other kinds of ways. Avoidance. We hide. We live in isolation. We don't have the courage to sometimes go do hard things, and so we we isolate ourselves. We insulate ourselves from that which we fear will hurt us. Fear can show up in domination. People who are fearful will often look the opposite. And if we aren't very good existentialists, if we aren't very good human psychologists, we will sometimes mistake brazenness for courage. We will sometimes mistake boldness for for bravery. But sometimes the loudest people, sometimes the strongest people, sometimes the most vocal people, sometimes the most seemingly decisive people are not actually led by the Spirit of God with courage and bravery, but instead are gripped and mastered by fear. And that is one of the really ironic things about the religious leaders of Israel. Seeing them through this lens gives a new light to their interactions with our Savior in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a reason why they 
disputed the veracity of his teaching. There's a reason why they tried to explain away his miracles. There's a reason why they conspired and were ultimately successful in murdering him. They were afraid. This explains why they missed who he was. Truly, they were looking for a Messiah of glory. We'll talk about that to some degree over Advent as we gather together and look at the Scriptures during December. They were looking for a Messiah of glory. But had they had eyes to see, they would have noticed that the Old Testament proclaimed that he would not just be a Messiah of glory, he would be a suffering Messiah. Why could they not see this? Why did they murder the Prince of Life? Why? Because they were afraid. They were afraid of losing what they had. And they had much. They had power. They had pedigree. They had treasure. And this unknown, upstart, seemingly uneducated son of a virgin, though they did not believe this, from the northern parts of Israel, could not hold a candle to them. How could he come in and upset their position? So what were they left with? They were left with a stark choice. Will we bow to this person or will we get rid of him? And so they tried that. They conspired with one of Jesus' disciples, convinced the Roman authorities to give consent, and then they murdered him. But of course, the irony of all this, as we already saw in Acts chapter 4, is this was God's plan. God's plan was to use their fearful pride, masked though it was, because through this, atonement took place. And though they sought to uphold this old system over which they were princes and lords, when Jesus died, the veil was torn in two. And the irony is God used their pride, motivated by fear, to give access to all peoples to himself. And furthermore, he didn't stay dead. For one of the great themes of the preaching of the apostles is that God raised him in power. And then it got worse for this council because it transformed at least a dozen people and then dozens and dozens and dozens more and this good news spread, preaching the good news in the name of Jesus. So why did this council of Israel led by this high priest, the Sanhedrin, for you Bible theology nerds. Why did they reject Jesus? Why did they reject his people? Why were they willing to further use violence? Because they were afraid of losing what they had. And the irony of all this, of course, is that though they would have said that they feared God. They could have quoted Proverbs. 
They knew that Solomon said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They knew that. They had learned that at their mother's knee. But they had never gotten there. It was mere words on a page to them. They didn't live in awe of God. They lived in awe of themselves. They lived in awe of others. They masked it. They couldn't put their finger on it, but it led them to the decisions that they made. But God has a way of tweaking our fears, of exposing who we are. So though they thought they would finally dominate these apostles, and I'm sure they thought that if they could get rid of the leaders that these people, these followers of Jesus of Nazareth, they would scatter and disperse. So they take them and they put them in prison. But God was at work, as He always is. He was at work through the arrest to accomplish something. So He sends an angel and He lets them out. The angel doesn't just say, hey, go hide out somewhere and recover. Verse 20, we find that the angel sent from God says to these apostles, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And then, verse 21, that's what they did. You would have thought that this night in prison would have been a pretty difficult night. I'm sure it was not the kind of place where you got a good night's sleep. Peter and John had had a little bit of experience with this, but the other apostles had not yet. They would all find in time that such things would be repeated. They would get used to such treatment. But they probably didn't sleep well. Probably had not rested well. And they probably were at least mildly afraid. But the angel sent from God strengthens them and tells them to go preach. And so they obey. So the high priest comes in the morning and wants to bring them before the council, this Sanhedrin. They send the officers to go get them. They get there, the guards are at the door just like they expect, and they open the door and there's no one in there. That would have been perplexing, as we find in verse 24. And what we find here is that God is knocking these people, these religious leaders, off their equilibrium. He's showing them that they're losing control. And we'll find in just a few minutes that there's basically two responses to this kind of activity of God. Let me hint at them now. When God exposes fear, which manifests itself in control, that's often what fearful people do. They try to control. They control other people. They try to control the narrative. As a little parenthesis, you're going to see that over this weekend, right? You have family members like this. So when you're talking to your mother-in-law or your cousin or whatever, and you see them acting this way, uh, this may not be the time to tell them that they're being controlled by their fear, but at least you have eyes to see it. We all have to learn to be better psychologists. Parenthesis closed, so good luck this week. There's two basic responses you have to such exposing. You can 
either relent and say, I'm tired of living this way, or you can try to grab control again. And as we will find, that's what these leaders did. But as God seeks to knock them off for equilibrium, we see in verse 25 that you would think that their actions would work in shutting the apostles up. But as we see in verse 25, these men who were put in prison and who have now been miraculously released are standing in the temple and they continue to teach. It's confounding. If you're this council, you would have had to have been infuriated. What do we have to do? We killed their Messiah. We keep putting them in prison. And they're not getting it. Unless you have missed it yet, look in verse 26. The captain with the officers went and brought them out of the temple, the apostles who were teaching there, teaching the words of life. But not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. This is a little insight into the hearts of these people. When we live in awe of other people, we'll be afraid of everything. Now let's just pause here for a minute. One of the reasons why the elders wanted to teach through the book of Acts, why we chose this, is because though there are so many wonderful things about this church, you love the truth. You love God. You love his people. You sacrifice your resources for him and for each other. We have weaknesses. One of our weaknesses is that we are not outward enough. As we are finishing up Ephesians and thinking next about where we would go as a church, we, we recognize this. And there's work to do. There's work to do individually, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, and corporately. And the elders are praying and talking about how we can structurally change some things to make this better. Stay tuned for that. But one of the weaknesses of our church, if we're all being honest, is that we are not as outward as we should be, and we are often cowards in the way that we share our faith. It's easy to excuse it with the <clears throat> reasons of busyness, of religious exercise, which keeps us from it, but Whatever excuse you would use in the blank why we don't live outwardly and share the good news as we should is because we're afraid. That, that's probably what it really comes down to in most senses. What are we afraid of? Well, it's unlikely we're going to be thrown in a public prison. I don't even know what that means. Like, Lewis Center does not have a public prison. If it did, it would have like Serta mattresses and we'd eat caviar, right? That's what the public prison here would be like. But we're fearful of other things, perhaps less tangible. We're fearful of rejection. What will people think of us if we declare such things? That there is one true God who made all things. And we're responsible to him. And he sent his son to die for us as a substitute. And he raised him again. 
And he calls all of us to repent and to turn to him in faith. And if we will, we will live life everlasting with him on a recreated earth, better than Eden. And if we don't, we'll suffer for eternity. That, to many, sounds like a fairy tale, and so we fear what people will think. And even if we talk to neighbors who are Christian-esque in their perspective on life, the idea in this day and age that Christ is the one and exclusive way to salvation, that it's not popular. We're fearful of rejection. We're fearful of people thinking ill of us. We're fearful, perhaps, of other costs that will accompany such a bold stand for the gospel. But I say to you that I, we, when we refuse to speak the words of life to dead people, or to tweak the analogy a bit, to dying people who are hopeless and destined for eternity apart from God, condemnation for eternity, when we fail to speak such words to those who desperately need it and who have no other way out, we're living in fear. Not in fear of God, not in awe of God, but in awe of people. We've hinted at this as we've worked through the book of Acts so far, but it doesn't take many pages to turn back to Luke's gospel and find that these apostles didn't used to be courageous. You know the stories. When Judas, accompanied by the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers, came into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, by and large, they didn't stand with him. In fact, eventually they all fled. Some of them hung around a bit, Peter being the chief example of this, and at Jesus' trial, denies him three times. They were not naturally brave people. But you find a much different company in the book of Acts. As Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells them to hang out in Jerusalem until he sends his spirit in fullness. And he will indwell them and grant them power. And then in the second chapter of Acts, everything's different. This company of people is different. They're filled with the Spirit and they live with courage. And then through each successive event, their courage grows. Here's the idea. Formerly, we were fearful. God has filled us with His Spirit. We don't have to be fearful anymore. And then each building story, there's another brick put in the wall of the edifice of their faith that God would come through. And that's what he did. If Pentecost is them testing Jesus, okay, you've called us to this, we're going to let it rip. Jesus came through. People were transformed. Converts came into the church by the droves. And through two things, by the power of Jesus working through the Spirit, and through each successive, second thing, promise of Jesus fulfilled, that when they stand up, he'll come through, they began to believe. They were not 
going to give in to the threats of the religious leaders. They were not going to give in to the fear of the prospect of jail or even losing their life. As we will go on into chapter 7, and we see the stoning of this common man, Stephen, and later imprisonments and stonings and beatings, it only fueled their faith. And if we're being honest, we look at that and we say, that's not us. We like reading it in one sense because that's a great story. But in another sense, if we're being honest, we don't like reading this. Because it's not our experience. And it exposes some things in us that we don't want to admit. And I'm right there with you. But brothers and sisters, if we believe that God through his word gives life. And God through his word transforms us. That's why we're here today. We come to hear the word of God because we believe inside of us at the core of our beating that we're not who we want to be yet. That there's changing that still needs to occur. And though we come here today with mixed hearts and mixed motivations, I believe because I know you that you're here today because you want to be different. Which is one of the things I love about you. You you love to bow in submission to the word. And so that's why we're spending these months in the book of Acts to see where we lack and where we need to change. And I say to you, whether it's easy for you to recognize this or not, you and I are afraid. And it's because we're in awe of other people and we are not in awe of God. If the disciples would later become the apostles, these sent ones of Jesus. If their time with Jesus, their three years with Jesus, did anything for them, it caused them to live in awe of him. This was capped off, of course, by the resurrection. Now, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, they are the bedrock of the church. That's why in the eternal state, the foundations of the city will be written with the names of the apostles. They're a blessing to us. They started the first churches and they left for us a record. Their great legacy is what they wrote. And so we stand on their shoulders today, common men and women like you and me, fearful, but progressively by the work of Jesus, they were being transformed. And... If you'll look back with me at Acts chapter 1, I invite you to do that. I want to suggest something to you so that you don't take this on yourself. We'll do this several times as we work through the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke identifies who he's writing to. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke is talking about his gospel. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. He is suggesting here that his first book, the gospel, was a record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. What is Acts, his second volume? It is all that Jesus continued to do and teach. How did the lame man in chapter 3 that started all this thing of chapters 3 through 5? Healing the lame man in the name of Jesus started this whole episode, which lasts three chapters. Who did that? Jesus did that. Who gave them boldness? Jesus did. 
Who added to the church? Jesus did. Who rescued them from prison? Jesus did. And so I say to you, lest you take this upon yourself and look inside and see the fear and try to drum up some sort of self-man-made courage, you can't do that. You've got to look to Jesus, which leads us to the second point, verses 27 through 42. When we live in all of God, and by this I mean Father, Son, and Spirit, God the Trinity, we won't be afraid of anything. Each person of the Trinity shows up here in this passage. They are to obey God. God raised Jesus, verse 30. God the Father is the idea, verse 31, raised him up as leader. Jesus is the one who suffered and died for them. And the Holy Spirit, verse 32, is witness to these things. What was different about the apostles from the end of Luke to the beginning of Acts? What was different? They stopped living in awe of other people. They're religious leaders, and instead they learned to live in awe of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then they weren't afraid of anything. Now, I'll say to you before we talk about some of the details of this section, that this doesn't happen overnight. For the apostles, it took a long time. It took three years with the Son of God, hanging out with Him every day. It took his crucifixion and resurrection and then time to pray. There was an interval between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where they hung out together and prayed a lot. We'll do that at the end of our time together today. It took time. Change takes time. It takes time just to look inside your heart and see what's there. It takes discussions. It takes prayer. It takes Bible reading. It takes meditation. It takes experiences. That's how God works. He changes us by degrees. You are not going to walk out of this place today, get a one-way plane ticket to Saudi Arabia with a case of Bibles, and go out and proclaim that Jesus is the one true way to God. You're not going to do that tomorrow. It's not the way this works. It takes time. If you, like me, have failed to share the good news as you should with people around you, it's going to take time to change and grow. But that's why we come together. In so many ways, this is the first step of the process to see what we should do and then why we don't do what we should do and then how we can change. And as Luke wrote this second volume, the book of Acts, which is all that Jesus continued to do and teach, through it we are changed and transformed. The apostles were changed and transformed because they learned to live in awe of God. And then they stopped being afraid of things. So they're brought before the council, verse 37. And they're questioned. We told you not to do this. And then once again in verse 29, Peter as leader with his companions say, we must obey God rather than men. That is a succinct way of saying we don't fear you anymore. 
we fear God. It's interesting in verse 28 that they say, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, of course, they're the ones who killed him. What they mean by that is, you want us to feel guilty about this. Yes. You killed him. You hung him on a tree. But verse 31, God had a plan through this. For through this, he exalted him at his right hand as leader. This is the same word that's sometimes translated author. We saw that in chapter 3. Jesus is the author of our faith, the leader of our faith. He's leader and savior. And if we will look to him, we will be granted repentance and forgiveness of sins. And the apostles say in verse 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And look in verse 33. The fear of the leaders, the fear of the council comes through in rage. Again, if we're good psychologists, we'll see the roots of why people do what they do. When people are caught in sin and they live in constant fear of others, what do they do? They lash out. Perhaps that's some of you. We've all done that. And inside we know why we're doing it. These people perhaps have become so callous that they excused it. But God had a plan here, and so he raises up a man named Gamaliel. Now, you know anything about the rest of the book of Acts, we know that Gamaliel had a really important disciple. His name was Saul, or Paul. One who would be complicit in the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and 8. One whom Jesus would radically convert in chapter 9. And one who would change the world by the power of the Spirit. So Gamaliel stands up. He was widely honored. He's well known in history. And he says, basically, if God is behind this, if the claims of these upstarts from northern Israel, these uneducated men, if their claims are true, if God's behind it, there's nothing we can do to stop it. And he talks about a couple of men who had led minor rebellions prior to this, and he says, if they're like them, then it'll fall apart. So he says in verse 37, after him, Judas, this is the second after Theudas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away people. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. That was, that was his idea. I think it's perhaps suggested that that's what he expected to happen. This was bigger. There were more leaders than just one, and there were more people joining themselves to them. Gamaliel probably believed that though this seemed to be a, a bigger deal, it would fall apart too. But look in verse 38. Great wisdom here. In the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is a man, it'll fail. Like Judas. And like Judas. But, verse 39, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That's interesting. It reminds us of John chapter 11, after Lazarus is raised from the dead. 
Many people heard about this and believed in him. But John 11 records that some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Then John says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Sometimes evil people speak better than they know. If God can inform, educate prophets through donkeys, he can educate and inform evil people through other evil people. Church history records that it's possible that Gamaliel became a convert. In Roman Catholic and in the Eastern Church tradition, there's a special day of remembrance of Gamaliel, a saint. It's hard for us to know whether that is the case or not. One might be led to believe that after his disciple Paul was converted, that perhaps one of the first people that Paul talked to was Gamaliel. Gamaliel, you taught me. You taught me that a Messiah was coming. You taught me that the law and the prophets prepared us for him. And we opposed him. We even killed some of his followers, but he appeared to me on the road to Damascus, and I'm radically changed, and I'm going to go preach his good news. What do you think about that? Maybe Gamaliel himself was eventually transformed. We don't know how Gamaliel's speech was transmitted to Luke. How did he know Gamaliel gave this speech? Maybe Gamaliel told Luke. We know that some of the council, like Nicodemus, did turn to Jesus in faith. And so they took his advice, verse 39, the council does. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then there's 41, which is one of the most mind-boggling verses in all the Bible, which doesn't seem to square with our experience. They left the presence of the council that did have power to kill them. And this is the tough part. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Has that ever been you? Most of us try to avoid suffering dishonor. Because we're so afraid, that's our bent. We do our dead level best to stay away from anything threatening. Right? We generation Xers who are raising these little kids now, we are often accused of being helicopter parents. Don't climb that tree. Wear your mouth guard. Don't drink unpasteurized milk. Don't even drink cow milk. Stay away from bad people. Don't say bad words. Stay away from bad TV shows. Stay away from bad people. Don't get dirty. Don't get messed up. We do all we can to avoid dangerous things and we overreact. That's our experience. What did the apostles do? 
they were happy that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This, in many ways, is the pinnacle of the chapter. This is what Luke has been driving to. The apostles stopped living in awe of other people because they knew they were afraid of everything. Instead, they learned to live in awe of God. The Father who had orchestrated the plan and raised their Savior. The Son who atoned for their sins and was working in and through them, still from heaven. The Spirit who had empowered them. They lived in awe of God the Trinity. And they learned to not be afraid of anything, even to the point that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and they rejoiced at such a notion. And then verse 42, every day in the temple, every day in the temple where everybody came, they weren't hiding out, they weren't doing this on the fringes, they didn't listen to the council. And so the next day, perhaps with black eyes and bloody cuts and broken limbs, they limp back to Solomon's colonnade And they keep going. And they just kept it up. And by implication from what we've seen in chapter 5 and chapter 2, many, many more people came to faith. It's amazing. I have to say to you, and I think you're like me, I I want to live like that. Don't you want to see Lewis Center and Westerville and Marion and Delaware and Columbus shaken? Not to make us look great, it's not about us, but for the glory of Jesus who who died in our place and has been raised victorious and to whom every knee will one day bow. Don't you want other people to taste of this and to pass from death to life? Don't you want to be caught up in that? I do. And I recognize that far too often I live in awe of other people which leads me to be afraid of everything and I'm tired of that. I want us to be tired of that, and I want us to live in awe of God. And we might not be afraid of anything, and we will make his good news known. How do we respond to this? Well, first, we need to devote some time to examine what we fear and what we treasure. How do you do that? Well, it's a pretty common application. You've got to spend time in God's word. That's how he does soul surgery on you. It's how he exposes what's inside of you. And then you've got to talk back to him. This is what I see. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is how I need to change. I suggest that it might be a good idea to do that together. If you are not already in a discipleship relationship, you might consider doing that with someone else or in your small group or somebody that you trust We have to devote some time to examine what we fear and what we treasure. The problem so often for us, as I've said recently, is we're just letting life happen to us. And we never take time to slow down and to read and to pray and to meditate. So I encourage you, take some time this week. See where you're fearful. See where you're living in awe of other people. See what you're treasuring that exceeds your treasuring of Jesus. There's good books out there. You may not be able to read this very well, but there's a book that I read not long ago called The Insanity of God. Anybody read this? Okay, good. Um, Buy this for Christmas when you maybe have a few few free minutes and read it. Um, There's a guy named Nick Ripken. That's not his real name, uh, so he can protect himself as he travels internationally. 
I was given this book uh, by a friend. I have his picture right here. This, this family today is in Africa in a place they're not really allowed to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus. This is a precious family. He gave me this book. And um, it's, it's the kind of book that will change the way you look at the world and you look at yourself. But basically the Ripkins um, went to Somalia and tried to help the herding there and spread the good news of Jesus. Great tragedy uh, uh, fell to their family and their faith was shaken. And they wanted to know what they were going to do. And so they went around the world to places like China and Russia, places where the gospel had been outlawed, and interviewed 600 people and asked them what had sustained their faith in the midst of imprisonments and beatings and threat to life. And out of that came this book, The Insanity of God. Um, The subtitle is A True Story of Faith Resurrected. I, I highly recommend it. This book will help you examine your heart. It did mine. Uh, secondly, let's all pick one person to pray for and then go give them the words of life. After we do the soul surgery of verse one, of, of, not verse one, sorry, application uh, suggestion number one, um, then we've got to do something. After, after we do the hard work of point number one, seeing what's inside, then we've got to go pray and, and act on it. So pick a person. It might be somebody you'll see this week. Somebody you don't even like very much. Or somebody that you love but is far from Jesus. Pray for them. And then just go tell them. You won't if you're in fear of man. You will if you are in fear of God. And then thirdly and lastly, let's all pray for others who are sharing the words of life. People on the front lines, so to speak. Each other, you might ask that your brother or sister prays for you as you go and tell your neighbor about Jesus. But we pray for our missionaries. We pray for pastors that we support in places like Kenya and Dubai. That the good news would be made known in hard places. So, more could be said, but this is a good way for us to start as a response to God's word in which we can see ourselves like a mirror, may we stop living in awe of other people, which explains why we're afraid of everything. And instead, may we live in awe of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And may we be afraid of nothing, for Jesus continues to work in and among us. Let's do some difficult soul surgery. Let's respond by telling others and by praying that this good news may be made known. People are dying all over the world, and we have the words of life. Let's take it to them. Now let's pray.